Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today, I'm so excited to present Jose. I actually feel so much closer to him after our interview. He has had a tumultuous childhood, to say the least. He's now independent, confident in who he is, and he's made it his life's mission to help others. He's a podcaster, too. Jose, welcome. I said Rita Megawatts production. So nice to see you. How are you? I'm amazing. How are you? I'm doing well. You've been super active in my fun Facebook group, so I want to dig into some of those responses. Let's do it. Oh my gosh. First of all, I didn't know that, like, I'm going to go deep. I didn't know that, like, you attempted suicide. Oh my God. So that is a part of my life that I feel is a story to tell because I think that when you identify as LGBTQ and you're part of this world and you don't recognize there's a community that's bigger than you that can help you with that, you're so lost by yourself. You feel like you're on an island that you wanna be seen and heard, but you don't know how to make yourself heard or be seen. And that was one of the bigger piece of that pie that led to those multiple attempts. The other was the feeling of abandonment from my family. And when I was 13, October 13, I was sent to Dominican Republic to go live with relatives. And my aunt, who was my mom's, you know, in the Spanish culture, you call everybody your aunt or your uncle. And this person, She's a lovely woman. I adore her. She taught me a lot. But she was my mom's cousin, who my mom grew up with and lived with when she was younger. So my mom also was sent away when she was a young kid and got sent to live in Dominican Republic. So history repeated itself in that circumstance. But the way it went down for me was a little different because I grew up in New York City and Growing up in New York was interesting in the 90s. You, being gay wasn't something you talked about. And if you did, you, you know, had a circle of people who you talked about it. And when you're 11, 12, 13 years old, you don't know what the fuck you are. And for me, I didn't know what I was. I didn't, I hadn't been exposed to that, but I knew I was different. I knew I was different enough where there was an attraction to women. There was an attraction to girls. And there was also this weird attraction to like looking at guys differently. I never knew what that meant, right? And what happened to me was my mom, who sent me away, not my dad, my mom, basically made up this false story about I being involved in a bad group of people and hanging around with the wrong crowd, and that going to high school in New York City would lead to my demise, and that I was really, I was a drug addict, that I was on drugs, 
all these crazy lies. And she, she told that to like, not just one or two people, like everyone thought that I was this bad kid on drugs. And no one questioned it. We went to Dominican Republic for vacation and July was coming and August was coming sooner. And she's like, well, I'm going back home. I'm like, okay, so when do we leave? She goes, well, you're not leaving. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not leaving? She goes, you're staying here with your aunt. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I was really confused about it. And I had no idea. I never saw it coming. It was a shock. So she just left me there. And I was forced to live with the family who I knew very little about. I had met my aunt and her uncle, my uncle, her husband, maybe seven times, eight times. They would come to New York. They would stay at our house. They would stay at hotels, but we would see them. And they had five kids. So now here's another one. And I only met one of them prior to moving there. And going from living in New York to a third world country that I had never visited, when you're 11, well, 13 at the time, but from the time that I was eight, like eight or nine, it sounds crazy. I was taking trains to go into Manhattan. I lived in Queens. So growing up in New York City, I was exposed to everything. And when I say exposed to everything, meaning I was walking down 42nd Street when there was prostitutes and the peep shows and all of that. And it was cultured, right? Maybe not the best, but it was culture. And you learned it from that. I grew up in the city. I was rollerblading in the boardwalk around the World Trade Center. Like all these things. So you go from having so much freedom to explore your own backyard and where you grew up to going to a place where there's a guard outside your house because after nine o'clock, you shouldn't be walking the streets. So the two lives and the two worlds in my life had just collided in at 13 years old when you're just becoming this teenager, going through puberty, trying to figure out who you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to be, who are your friends, all of that just completely fell apart in front of me. And I always, my mom and I have this terrible relationship that will never ever come to a heart of hearts. I think it's just always going to be this person who was a toxic part of my life that I had to just let go. And I did that this year, earlier this year, I actually left her a really long voicemail for as long as the voicemail would let me and just said, you know, I'm going to forgive you for everything you've done, but I don't want you in my life. I don't ever want to talk to you again. I choose to never, ever see you. And this doesn't mean that my brother forgives you. I'm just telling you, I forgive you. And I'm doing this because I want to transform my life. I want to move forward and I don't want to feel this toxicity for the rest of my life. I feel so much weight and burden because of what you've done and because of the things you did. And I don't want to live like this anymore. So I'm telling you this because this was one of my things that has been holding me back for a lot of many years. And that was so empowering. I cried after I hung up the phone because I never thought that just saying it out loud and being able to let go of it was going to make me feel better. When I was a kid, and I think any kid, you just want your parents to love you. And I always had this like clashing where we just never ever got along. 
some people would argue that we had maybe the same, not personalities, but the same emotions and the same type of mindset and strength of people, like strong personalities really is what it came down to. Both very strong personalities. You know, the truth kind of came out as I started to grow up and get older, but my mom never really wanted me. And I think that all the things she did was out of spite to my grandmother and to punish me for being in existence. So <laughs> the story is so all over the place, but I grew up with my, both my parents. They divorced later in life, but always fighting. And it was, I had a younger brother and sister and my grandmother lived downstairs. So my grandmother was always there to take care of us. She raised us as well. And she always took care of me. I was my grandmother's son. Like I was, my brother was my mom's mama's boy. My sister was daddy's little girl. And I was my grandmother's favorite, no doubt. And my grandmother was like my mom. I adored that woman. I took care of that woman to the day she died, like all the things. My mom could not get over the fact that someone else loved me. And I think she kind of felt like in a weird way that why did she love you and not love me? Right? Because her mother did the same thing to her that she did to me. Maybe she didn't realize it later in life. All these things kind of come together because when you get to that point of realizing all the, the, like the history of it all, you're five, six, seven, eight years old and you're starting to come to understand this person just doesn't like you. Like here they go. Now they drop you off someplace you've never been before. Yes, it's a part of my culture. Yes, it's a part of my identity. It was great to experience it for a summer, but I didn't ask to live there. You know what I'm saying? You jump me there. And for two and a half years, I went to school there. I was on a curfew. I had rules. I lived under someone else's roof. And the biggest thing for me was there was a culture shock that was societal. There's class. You're either poor or you're rich. We were rich. And I went to a super expensive private school that cost like 20000 a year. And I went to school with kids whose parents were millionaires. One of the famous singers, if you Googled him, Juan Liguerra, he's a merengue singer. He was very famous in the 90s. His son went to school with me. The person who came out with the National Lottery of the Dominican Republic, I went to school with her daughter. One of the people who owns a huge pasta company in Dominican Republic, I went to school with her daughter. So people who are very, very wealthy and influential in the, com in the country. So messed up. Like besides the, his, the systemic racism, when you talk about people who are the same as you, speaking the same language, skin tones are very similar. You had brown, you had caramel, you had black, you had everything. But the systemic racism in class, because someone worked in your home, doesn't mean you treat them like a piece of shit. And I witnessed that every day. Like I would tell the person who worked for my aunt, like, please don't, you know, don't wash my clothes. You don't have to do that. I'll wash my own clothes. I'll iron my own clothes. And she would get in trouble for it if she didn't do it. Like I told my aunt, myself, I said, she doesn't need to do that for me. Like I can do it myself. I know how to use a wash machine. I don't need her to do it. I was always <laughs> seeing how much I can like bend it because it just irritated me. I'm like, these are human beings. And at that age, I was, you know, 13 years old and I recognized that this was wrong. 
And the way I got out of it to kind of full circle, I mean, I attempted twice to kind of go into back the beginning. And I, the first time was throwing myself off the roof of the house and no one was there. I didn't break anything. I had a couple of bruises and scratches, really sore for days. And the bruises were on my side, on my hip and my back and just scratches from the trees. And no one was there, no, no one ever noticed it. I covered it up. And then the second time was pills. And I ended up throwing up and was sick for days. My stomach was really bad, like bad diarrhea and all that shit, like throwing up and everything else. And it took me about three weeks, maybe four weeks to like finally feel like back to normal. Like I wasn't, I didn't eat for almost a month straight normally cause I couldn't, my buddy would like just throw it up or I would like have diarrhea. So, after that happened, I chose to write and I chose to look for things to preoccupy my time that I thought were going to help me get over what I was dealing with because then I started to recognize, okay, so if I'm not meant to be dead, right? At this point, like maybe I could have cut myself. And the way I thought of it was like, I didn't want it to be bloody and nasty. I wanted it to be clean and quick. And sounds really weird when you think about being suicidal, but in my head, I had it played out as to how I wanted it to be. I didn't want it to be like this murderous scene of blood and for people to find me. I didn't want it to be anything like that. I wanted it to be just clean and done. If I could have like jumped off a bridge, I probably would have done that too. I decided to get involved in sports, which I never thought in a million years I would. I started getting active in track and field. I played volleyball, I played soccer, and all of those activities kept me away from being in the house, being with people who I just couldn't connect. And, they, and I can't say that they didn't try. I felt like they tried in their own weird way, but I'm like, I don't know you, and I'm forced to live with you and share this space with you was hard. And at the same time, I'm trying to learn and figure out who the fuck I am. So, Adopting to that and then dealing with bullying at school, there was a couple of people who were just the worst. And I just quite didn't understand what this kid had it in for, but I could never get over this one class without him saying some stupid shit. And the same thing would happen the minute the professor would turn their, their back and they'd be on the blackboard. And so that added another layer. So I fell into like, you know, this mindset of like, I'm going to cover everything up as best as possible, pretend that nothing is wrong. And I'm going to work my way to get out of here. So I made a plan that I was going to run away. And I skipped out of school. And I took a bus that, that would take me to the town where my father was from, because my dad said the family had to help me. I knew they were going to help me. I was convinced they were going to help me. So the only way they helped me was by calling my parents and telling them that I ran away, which made it worse. And I gave my parents an ultimatum. I'm like, look, if you ever want to see me again, you need to send me a one-way plane ticket like stat. So we agreed to wait until like I finished the school year. So it finished in May. And in May of 1998, I want to say, they sent me the ticket and I came home. But the kicker to it was, I came home I, and everything was different. I didn't know, my brother and my sister were grown. 
They didn't know me. I didn't really know them. There were younger kids when I left. It was just this really bizarre thing to come back to this house that had changed so much. And it was really clear that they were a unit, the four of them. And it was the way she wanted it. So I got picked up at the airport. I ate dinner. I hung out with them at the table. And the next thing I know, my dad brings down the suitcase that I had just came back home with and puts it on the door. And he's like, well, you know, your mom doesn't want you to stay here, so you can't stay here. You should just go stay with your aunt or go figure out if your grandmother will let you stay with you. I was 15. So for two years, I hadn't lived with my, my parents, my brothers, my sisters, my brother, my sister, and, you know, kind of hadn't seen my family. It just was so bizarre to like be back in New York and feel like, what the fuck did I just come back to? I still really didn't understand any of it, like the why. I went and stayed with an aunt and I got a job working at Wendy's, my first job ever, hustled my ass off. I worked over any shift they gave me, I was going to work. I wanted that money and money became the resource to help me figure out like, what am I going to do next? And I always felt like I was hustling for something because whether it was to buy a pack of cigarettes, because I smoked at the time, I buy a pack of cigarettes or I would give my aunt money for letting me stay there. Like rent isn't free, living in any place isn't free. So, you know, she had her two kids and her sick husband and you add another person to a one bedroom apartment in New York City. So I go from living in a house growing up, a two family house with my grandmother, my parents, my two, my two siblings, to living in a mansion in Dominican Republic, to back to New York, to being kicked out of my family, to go live in a one bedroom apartment, to who people who were struggling, my aunt who took me in, like she couldn't work because she was taking care of her husband. Her two kids were going to school, like all the things that could have possibly, like you now throw a 13 year old a 15-year-old at this woman to take care of. And she was always my biggest cheerleader. She always knew that I was gay. And we would sit there and chain smoke until like three o'clock in the morning. I'd wake up at six, get my ass to school. After school, I would go to work and it was the same exact cycle. I never knew what it was like to sleep a full night, like a full eight hours. I was like always scared of either oversleeping or just bad. I never ever, even as a child, it was one or two in the morning by the time I went to bed and then I would wake up when I had to wake up. So I did that for about a year and a half. And then my grandparents had been in the process of wanting to sell their house. And my mom was forced to move out from upstairs so she decides to come and want to live with my aunt. So I, I had to leave. Yeah, it's fucked. It's just a fucked up situation. I mean, to go from all of that. So, I mean, th- all of this isn't even relevant to the whole suicide situation. The story originally was and why it happened. But when you have so many fucked up scenarios where and I had thought about it again. I had ideations later in life when I got into my late, late teens, early 20s because of how struggling with really, truly being gay or was I bi? Who really was I? And having this attraction to women 
and wanting to be married so bad because that's what my culture taught me being Hispanic. Fear of disappointing but disappointing myself, being unsure of what decisions to make, not feeling like I truly knew who I was and wanted to be, and not being able to connect to people. That I struggled with a lot. And I finally got like real counseling when I was about 24. It took me that long to like, not know, just more of like, oh, I need to get help. Like this is, I don't want to go back to what happened and no one knew. I need to really be healthy. And I was on a couple of different antidepressants. The one that I remember the most was Lexapro and Zoloft. I did that for a couple of years and I was a big pothead. And I'd done every drug under the sun except LSD and except crack cocaine. But those in itself were therapeutic. Smoking weed, coke, just the idea of a high made me feel like normal in a weird way when you've had nonstop turmoil in your life where you can't control anything. And for that half a night or however long the high lasted, I felt free of everything else. As fucked up as that sounds. And I never really got addicted. So that was a plus because I know that addiction and alcohol and drugs is a terrible disease. One of my really close friends passed because of addiction. I started to realize, okay, I I know I want so much more for myself. And I know that if I'm meant to do anything in this world with intention is to help others to realize that they're good enough and they don't need other people to love them. They have to love themselves. And I think a lot of where my messaging in who I am and the person I've become and the coach that I am comes deeply rooted from, you don't always have to be happy and you're going to have moments in your life where you're truly sad and even depressed. But those are emotions that we all have to live because we drive in this journey of life and we never know where the road is going to take us. So being able to understand that sadness, just as much as happiness, is an emotion that we have to embrace. And we have to embrace the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And it ultimately causes us to become stronger as people I truly believe that God does not put anything in your path that you cannot overcome. And I don't care to, if you're spiritual or non-spiritual, faith-driven, Christian, whatever religion you believe in, something up there, there's a power of sorts that really does that, has a way of navigating you towards what you need to go and the direction you need to go. And, you know, I, I look back at the 37 years of, you know, turbulence because I feel like it hasn't been easy even from the time that I was born I was born with a punctured lung practically dying so even from then I don't think it was ever meant to be easy and I've just accepted and embraced that the journey that is presented to me is always intended to learn from and maybe teach others about with guidance and wisdom to help them along their own journey I take so much pride in helping people who are truly, I don't want to say lost, but looking for meaning in life and looking for purpose and looking for passion. And when I realized 
my calling in life, literally, I call it calling in life, it was like the light bulb went off and I haven't stopped since. I have so many questions, but first of all, you are a walking miracle. A little bit. Oh my God. The first question is, how did your mom pawn you off to your aunt? Oh my God. Like, how did that happen? I've got a 12-year-old that occasionally I'm like, dad, come get him. But like two and a half years and really come get him and here's the suitcase. How the hell did she do that? It was planned. She had planned it. My dad had no idea that she did that. When she came back without me, she told the story she wanted people to believe. And, you know, she had already had the conversations, I would say probably a year into my eighth grade, my senior year of junior high school. So in New York, you go to school from K through five, so elementary school, and then sixth, seventh, and eighth is middle school. But when you're in middle school, the catch is that if you go to school in the five boroughs, you apply to high school. So eighth grade came around and I, and I was really fortunate where sixth, seventh and eighth grade were some of the best years, but also terrible years because my mom, for some reason, felt the need that, okay, if I do this, then he'll never think that I'm less or that, I'll, that if I do this, he won't hate me as much. It was all like a plan from the very beginning. My aunt coming to visit, getting to know and spend time, they came with intention, right? They came here because my uncle was part of the Knights of Columbus and he was doing their thing. But for like a good three or four years of them coming and building that relationship, that was intentional. That is, that is the kind of person this woman is. So. She does a good job at pretending and hiding and leading people to believe what she wants them to believe. She's very manipulative like that. And were you on drugs at that time? No, I had never ever touched any form of a drug. Did they talk to you? So there was the occasional card that got sent with money and it was very specific to money that went towards my aunt to pay for school and then money that came to me for like spending, but never like, they forgot my birthday for the second year that I was there. The first year, because it was so close to leaving me, they didn't like, my mom sent me stuff and my grandmother sent me stuff. My grandmother would always call. And I had some friends that were like pen pals. So we wrote wrote to each other pre-internet, right? That was it, yeah. My brother came to visit not me, but he went to my dad's family, I feel like for a hot second and then went back to New York with my father. And I never got to see them. Was that like so hard for you to be apart from your siblings? That led to my brother and I not having any sort of a relationship for a long time. And it wasn't until we were like in our 20s when we were actually able to forge a really genuine relationship that started as a friendship, even though we're blood, to like really being connected. It took a lot. And it took my sister's passing for that to happen because at the time, my brother started to realize my mom's behavior. And my mom, I feel like my mom is 
like literally she needs to be committed. Like the mental health meter on that one is through the roof. Like the DSM four or five, whatever version is right now, ain't got nothing on her. And she'll make you believe what she wants you to believe. And we never talked about any of it. It took him a long time to understand the lies. At first he didn't want to believe it and he didn't want to understand how big of a deal it was and how much it really impacted me. He couldn't get to like the understanding of what it was. And then he had his own experience with my mom when she lived with him, which is a whole different, like really long story that kind of like, I think, you know, he was dad, he was mama's boy, right? That kind of broke the straw of the camel's back and it really forged, you know, a wedge between their relationship. And he had to learn it. Look, and eventually he would get a taste of it. And I told her when she moved there with to live with him, I said, if you do anything to ruin my relationship with my brother that I've worked really hard to build, I'm promising you I will kill you. Like, I will kill you and chop you up to pieces and throw you in the Hudson River. Like, I don't care. I will go to jail. But you're a terrible person and human being. And that was at the level of relationship that I had with her. And that's how I spoke to her. And she would laugh. Like, that was her response. So, like, she didn't understand how her behavior affected so many people. And a part of me allowed for years, now it doesn't, but a part of me allowed it to affect me for such a long time, over half my life, because from the time that I was born up until I would say even January, I felt like there was this crazy spell where even though I didn't talk to this person, I had spent years not seeing or talking to and never engaging in conversation, I still felt like the wrath of her had come over my entire life. And it would bother me in such a weird way that was almost like heartbreaking. Um, and I'd, sometimes I would cry because of the idea that I wanted this really, I wanted a relationship with her. And I wanted a relationship that wasn't so toxic. I really did. I wanted to work on it. But I just, I learned, I had a really good friend of mine say to me, she goes, sometimes family isn't meant to be part of your life and you have to let them go. And it took me like, really? Like, I didn't, like, she's my mother. Like, why would I want to, right? What For what? And I did. And I just feel so much better, like, it was amazing to have to gone through that. And I don't think I would have ever, maybe I would have dealt with depression and maybe I would have dealt with, you know, all the different types of things that I had, but I don't know that I would have ever thought about committing suicide if I hadn't had what she did. Does she because know that you tried? Maybe. I wrote a book when I was younger in, in college that was a whole story of like what transpired and it was published and it was the proceeds were used to provide scholarship funding for underdeserved or underrepresented minorities and students choosing to study linguistics in Spanish. And so I gave the book to my dad and hopefully like I gave him a copy. I was like, here, figure out which story is mine. And I don't know if he ever gave it to her, but I know that my aunt, who I was really close to, she knew, and I don't know if she ever told her. I'm sure she did. 
I don't know that it would have made a difference to her. You never talked about it with her. I never really talked to her. It was always fighting. There was never really like conversation with her. It was so hard to engage in conversation because you were so busy trying to decipher everything coming out of her mouth if it was truth or a lie. It took my dad like years. I'm like, if you knew that she was this bad, why didn't you ever leave? Like, he's like, I didn't want to leave you guys with her and her being so crazy. I was like, so you suffered for like, I was 21 or 22 when they separated and my sister passed when I was 22. So they had like finally gotten to the divorce process and it was just like, I don't understand. I mean, I have a, I have a really close relationship with my dad now, but it wasn't that close before. It took a lot of time for me to like have conversation and really get to know him and for him to get to know me. And I remember when I came out, everyone else knew except me, but like in a really weird way, I never ever thought my dad would ask me, why are you hanging out with that guy? A friend of mine who was very clearly gay. I'm like, we're just friends. He goes, do you like him? I'm like, we're friends. Of course I like him. Like he's a friend of mine. He goes, but like, are you, do you like guys or do you like women? I'm like, well, why are you asking? He goes, well, because you've been hanging around a lot of gay guys. I'm like, is that a problem? He goes, well, I'm just curious as to like, what do you like? I'm like, I'm bi. And that's how I left it. Like, I never really said I was gay. And then fast forward, I was with this girl who was my best friend and her and I were together for a while. And then I went started, started dating a guy. So it was like, okay, he, he clearly is bi, really not knowing what he wants. And I think identity is such a strong thing. And we love to put people in boxes and, you know, label things. And I've always said that, yes, there's a sexual attraction to what attracts you as a sexual person. But I feel like we can choose to love anyone, but we can also love love and not feel like there always has to be a sexual attraction. And I think my relationship with many of the women that I've had, there has been both. And I've found myself thinking that I would marry at some point in my past, not now, I would marry a woman and have a family because that's what I was taught to believe that I should do, whether I was gay or not. And after realizing, no, I really like men, but I still love women, I just prefer to be with men. I'm like, that's okay too. And back then there wasn't asexual. Um, we didn't have all these categories that we now can identify with. So it was always clearly easier for me to say that I was bi and not try to put a label on anything. But I've dated men for over 15 years now, so I guess it doesn't really matter. But Do you miss dating women at all? I love women, whether I'm dating them or not. I don't feel like I have to have a, an intimate relationship. I, have, I mean, I'm married, I have a, my husband's a guy. I like having girlfriends and people who are good and it doesn't have to be a woman or a man. I don't have a lot of guy friends. Most of my guy friends are gay. You know, there's very little straight guy friends that I have. Can I ask you a super controversial question? Oh, do it. <laughs> do you think people choose to be gay? 
No. Because here's the thing. I don't believe that people choose to be gay because if we, if we chose that, do you think we would want the craziness that comes with going through years and years of doubt and hurt and pain? I think it's easier now to grow up and be gay. But when I was a kid, and I think it also depends on what your family is like and the culture you come from. If you're a, a little black boy or if you're a little Spanish boy, that ain't going to fly very well. And maybe if you're a white boy too, but I think it's less common if you're white. I'm just thinking that's my impression and that's what I've seen. A lot of my friends who are white who, you know, grew up, didn't have problems coming out to their families and their families embraced it. I had the fear of God that I was going to get killed. I came out without knowing that I did. And I couldn't understand, like, if so many other people knew it, then why didn't my family just say, look, we know you're gay. Just be yourself and be happy and love yourself. There was always this negative tension around it. Like my mom, the minute I said I was bi, my mom went batshit crazy and was like, I need you to move from the house. And until you don't move, until you move, you need to make sure every single toilet of the house is clean with Clorox bleach. And you're not to bring anybody around the house. I don't want you talking to your brother and your sister. Like, to the nine. Like, she was so extra beyond it. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And my dad's like, what is wrong with you? Like, my, even my father, which I thought it would be complete opposite. I mean, I didn't want to admit how I felt out of fear. And I knew that I couldn't try. Like, who wants to keep lying to themselves or lying to their family? Who wants to live feeling like you're under a microscope? Who wants to live feeling like you're not seen? I don't, for a second, I think that maybe there is a genetic deviation to why there is heterosexuality and homosexuality, but there's a reason we exist. And, you know, we clearly bring love and joy into the world. But I also feel that the, the idea of sexual preference and sexual gender is not something we choose. I think it's something we're born with and we as a society are learning to live with it because more people are more comfortable with accepting themselves. Can you tell me how to get over self-hate and define love? Oh my God. I think you have to want to love yourself. You have to love yourself. You have to stop allowing the world around you dictate who you should be and who you want to be. The only person that is allowed to at all to tell you who you should be, who you want to be is you. And you're worthy of so much more and that. And whoever you want to feel and however you want to feel, you're allowed to feel that way. No one can tell you you should feel. If you feel like, oh, I'm so fat and nasty today. Those are your thoughts and feelings. And you're allowed to feel that way because that's part of our human behavior. That is part of our human emotion. That is part of being connected and feeling. And yes, you can hate yourself for doing something you fucked up or doing something you regret. Yeah, you can feel that genuine guilt, right? But you have to love yourself to be able to put yourself in front of people. You have to love yourself to be able to lift yourself up and get through life 
you have to love yourself to be able to be worthy of being loved. If you don't love yourself, how the hell are you supposed to love somebody else? And RuPaul says that, I don't say that. But I, I happen to believe that it's very true. I think the reason why I had such fucked up relationships and such a fucked up childhood was because I never saw myself and never loved myself. I never dared look in the mirror and thought I looked good or felt confident. I always felt negative. I body shamed myself. I was a fat obese kid with wear glasses. I didn't love myself. No one loved me. No one, I didn't feel loved. Even my grandmother who adored me didn't feel it. She would say it to me every single day when she would say goodnight at the bottom of the staircase and we would do a prayer and I would watch her turn off the light and walk out to her house and I would go upstairs to my family's house and I didn't feel it. When did you start feeling it? Oh, I was like probably in the last 10 years. That's sad. Yeah, it was, it was, it was sad. And it took years of learning and writing, journaling, positive affirmation, hearing, and, and, and a hearing meaning like hearing other people say it to themselves and truly believing, like, I mean, I probably should have been a walking like medical disaster when it comes to like antidepressants and drugs. I chose to stop taking antidepressants and drugs because I truly found and felt that my body shouldn't feel the way I feel from these side effects. And I'm not saying that anybody should do that. I did it. That's me. That's myself. But I felt like I have to change my mindset if I want to feel better. I don't think that drugs are going to make me feel better. I don't think that being under this I felt like lethargic after it almost like if you ever smoke pot, it's the feeling of after you're high and you wake up and you're like, Oh, that's how I felt 24 seven every single day. I'm so proud of you for where you are right now and all the amazing things that you're doing. Can we talk about some of that? Cause you have <laughs> yeah. honestly come so far. I mean, you've, started a podcast and you're connecting with amazing people and you're being on other people's podcasts and you've helped how many people find jobs? Thousands. Like, thank you, by the way. I appreciate that. I don't tell my story enough because I feel like I want to hear other people's stories. I truly want to hear other people and learn. And I find that one of my biggest strengths is if you've ever read or heard of um, the Clifton Strains Finder. Individualization is my number one and is hearing listening. And I, as a holistic, you know, life coach and all the things that go with that, when I sit there with my students and my clients, I truly am present with them and I'm attentive and absorbing and listening. I feel like that's a true reflection of what a coach or a mentor or a friend should be. Being able to reflect on how they're feeling and experiencing is one of the best gifts to help people and lift people up and lead them in a path that ultimately is successful to them. Most people spend half their lives trying to figure out what they're meant to be doing. I'm very blessed to have learned that, you know, 12 years ago. It's very inspiring and it's very rewarding. I knew for me that I always needed to do more. I thought 2020 was that year. I really did. I said yes to new adventures in 2019 
with diving deep into collecting all the things and learning all the things and educating myself on all the things and wanting to dive into 2020 with taking action. I'd talked about doing the podcast for a year. I had talked about starting my own coaching practice for a year. I talked about a lot of stuff and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. And it's so rewarding to see after five months of having the podcast, how many people are listening. I have over a thousand downloads in five months. That may not be a big number, but to me, that surely is a big number. I think about every time I see that number change, I think about how much I've grown and I think about how much I've helped someone, even if it's in a small way. Even if you listen to the, the intro, which is a minute long, great. There's tons of juicy information on there. Soak it all up. Let me know when you're ready for a clarity session. We can chat for 30 minutes. Like truly has been great to have this journey. You know, there's more to come. I'm excited for all of them. I'm just getting started. Let people know how they can find your podcast and connect with you. Yeah, so my podcast is everywhere, but the podcast is called Life and Business Coaching for Millennials. So it's not just for millennials, but millennials happens to be who I am and who connects with me and who I've helped for over a decade. And now I'm helping Generation Zs. And if you're that parent who's trying to figure out how to help their kid in this journey of life, I'm really good at helping teenagers and young adolescents and figuring out that journey. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at Jose Miguel Longo. My website is called Coaching with Jose Miguel. I'm in all the places, truly trying to like be everywhere. (laughs) Are you on TikTok yet? I don't do it, but I'm on there. (laughs) I spend much time scrolling up and watching the videos and laughing. I haven't hit that button to record yet. Maybe someday, maybe soon. What's next? I think courses is really the next thing. It's the most logical next step. But I think about the growth that I want in my life. And I think it needs to be exponential. I hit these milestones that I never thought or even made goals to. I just wanted to do them. And, you know, I have clients that I'm working with, which is amazing to think about not even having been a year in a business and having actual clients that are paying you. I spent so many years doing this for free (laughs) that it's just great to know that building the life that I really truly want for myself. And I think everyone is deserving of a life they want for themselves. They just have to believe in themselves enough to do that. And I truly believe that I need to map that. I need to design that and make it a reality and continuing to welcome people into the community. You know, I have a Facebook group of, you know, 300 people. It's the same name as a podcast, Life and Business Coaching for Millennials. But everybody's welcome. I host an all-inclusive show, a space for everybody to come and enjoy and chat and conversation. And I'm welcoming it. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Oh, my God. I wonder what he would think about this conversation. Oh, he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you. (laughs) I apologize for cursing so much. I'm sorry. I swear like a sailor. What words of wisdom does he have? Because... I think that I've definitely lived my best life. And I say that all the time, like I've grown into becoming this person. I don't know that people spend enough time reflecting on themselves and the people they're becoming, they become. 
And I don't think enough people spend time by themselves to look at all those things, which I think to grow to where you want to be, you have to have that. I wonder if you would agree with me on that. This has been amazing. I'm glad and we did it. And I'm me too. so overdue. <laughs> Aw, have a wonderful evening. Thank you, you so much. Enjoy. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Grandpa, what did you think? The hazardous road to self-awareness. He's had tremendous adversities to overcome and trying to even figure out his own path with many, many bumps in the road, he's now going to be able to use his experience to hopefully help other people. But the main person that he helped was himself. And by able to find that he really loves himself and that he is aware of a lot of difficulties and finding a road to where he could understand himself, hopefully it will help him and help other people as well. And I think that there's just a lot of lessons in this. You know, it starts off where his has a very tough relationship with his mother, where he's the firstborn, and his father and mother seem to be able to put it together with the other two children, as long as he's been excluded. For some reason, his mom, where her mom maybe did the same thing to her, look how the mold repeats itself. Certain people that hit their children or abuse their children, those children abuse their children. Children that are on welfare, the games that the parents play to get a free ride, and that mold stays in place where they have children and try to play the welfare game. People that do certain things that are wonderful in life. Sometimes a son is the baseball player of a famous baseball player or a lawyer, and the son becomes a lawyer. You'd be surprised how many times what the parents do is reflected with the same occupation and the same way of life is continued into the next generation. And with his grandmother sending his mom away, isn't an ironic twist that he was also sent away and, and his mom, probably having issues of why she was sent away, took it out on her firstborn. Plus, I don't know when she knew his sexual orientation and whether that played a part in it, but he admitted that he ran the streets, he was very uh, independent and did his own thing and actually would go downtown at a very young age. And his mom thought that maybe he was going to get into trouble, maybe that he was had some deviant behavior and did not want that behavior to influence his younger siblings. You know, you have to dig a little deeper to really know the the, the full thing really out of her head. You'd have to talk to her. The fact is, is that that relationship was not there. And yet all along the way, a child still wants to be accepted and encouraged by their parents, no matter what, no matter how badly they might even be treated. And he was not able to really ever find that type of peace with his mom. He tried to have a relationship where his father could understand some of the paths that he was taking. But that, again, was later in life. And losing his sister, I don't know what the cause of death was, but obviously at a very early age, that seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back between the two parents' marriage, where the little girl was obviously his father's favorite 
And I'm sure it was just devastating, that loss that seemed to just destroy whatever family relationship that he had with, with his uh, wife and with the children. I think that loving yourself is a very important ingredient in this, making sure that whatever example parents do with their children is also, as we stated in other interviews, as an extremely important ingredient to whether a person has a chance to develop correctly. And sometimes if a parent is not able to fit the bill completely, a grandparent sometimes can fill in and give that extra ordinary edge to someone's relationship to really even the cards. But he had to really find his own way. And he did end up with having a, a drug problem. He did end up with not knowing if he was just coming and going. And if he had a chance to rebel and do his own thing, he wanted to do that. But isn't it interesting that when he tried to end it all up from his frustration, that he didn't want to really hurt himself? You know, when he says, well, I don't want a, a bloody mess here. I don't want to feel any pain. You know, jumping off a roof or taking pills is really, he also gave an opinion that it might have just been not really where he tried to kill himself, but a way to reach out that he's in trouble and he needs help. I think that that's very interesting that a lot of people that say that they want to kill themselves don't really want to kill themselves. They really want to use it as a ploy for extra, extra, extra attention. A lot of times that extra, extra attention isn't out there. Still, a person has to be able to find their needs or the attention that they want where it has to be searched out by themselves and find things that they like to do or have a passion to do. And he liked to write. He started playing some sports to occupy his time when he was able to get a job to help support himself and to help fill in some money because of his auntie taking him in or his grandmother taking him in, that he, he felt a sense of responsibility. So when you start feeling a sense of responsibility, when you start uh, doing things that make yourself feel better, that are not drugs and not alcohol, you find out that your purpose can improve. If you're just going to take drugs, or you're just going to hang out with a gang, or you're just going to be mischievous without any purpose, that makes it, I think, a lot more difficult to find that self-awareness that there's something great in all of us. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show.